0: You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at eCorner.stanford.edu. I am super psyched to be introducing Hemant Shaw today. Uh, Hemant and I have the pleasure of working together a little bit in my non uh, in my non DFJ non Stanford work. And, uh, and I got to know him through that. And RMS is just a super interesting, fantastic company. Uh, Hemant is a faculty brat. He actually was raised here on the Stanford campus, went to elementary school, high school, uh, went to Stanford undergrad, uh, got his degree in civil engineering, and has his master's from Stanford as well. So they don't get any more cardinal red than Hemant, Right. And uh, he is going to talk to us today about uh, RMS and his experience. Without any further ado, Hemant, uh, take the show. Thank you, Heidi. I am am definitely a Stanford brat. Um, When I finally um, got married in 1998 and Danielle and I decided to move to San Francisco, my mother was in tears. She's like, oh my God, you're leaving us, like you're moving all the way to San Francisco. I'm like, mom, I'm finally leaving the zip code for the first time (laughs) in my life. Um, I'd also like to just acknowledge right from the get-go my father, Professor Horesh Shah, who got his graduate degree and his doctorate here at Stanford and then came back to teach as a young professor, which is why I grew up on the Stanford campus. And my father's life work as a pioneering researcher in the field of earthquake risk assessment was not only the inspiration for this business, but it's a catalyst. And without his uh, his support, uh, RMS never would have been born, let alone thrived over the years. Now, as a catastrophe modeler, um, I had to check out this building uh, before agreeing to come and give a presentation. (laughs) Uh, so we ran this uh, this building through our model and uh, we looked it up in our database and it's something we call a Class 3 construction, which is quite good. Recent construction, 125,000 square feet, four stories in height. I hope we've got that right in our database. Uh, we then looked at its uh, local hazard environment properties. It's on soft rock to stiff soil. That's pretty good. Uh, low potential for liquefaction, which is soil failure, Uh, due to the water content in the soil and very low landslide potential, we're on pretty firm, flat, and we're unfortunately about 4.3 miles from the San Andreas Fault. Now when we uh, crank this through our stochastic models, um, we are estimating that there is a um, 90 90 percent chance over the next 50 years that the damage to this building does not exceed 14 percent. Now I know that would be cold comfort if an earthquake strikes during this presentation, but this is a pretty well-built, well-situated property and according to the RMS models, uh, you're in good shape and uh, we should be fine. (laughs) So um, this photo uh, was taken uh, back in 1989 of Wei Min Dong, my co-founder, who was an associate professor at Stanford and myself, Uh, we look much younger and better uh, 24, 25 years ago. And uh, that's a, uh, a a copy of uh, what we called Iris version one, which we shipped on a five and a quarter inch floppy diskette. Uh, the, uh, as part of, I guess, being a faculty brat, um, we worked on the business plan um, here at Stanford. Um, it, the whole thing was a bit of an accident because I took a class. I was a, I was a uh, an engineering uh, student doing my master's work in the engin- what was then called the engineering uh, management program. And the business school, I think, in a, a nod to multiculturalism, uh, set up a program that I think they called uh, Entrepreneurship in High Technology. And the GSB welcomed a few, of us, a few of us scruffy engineering grad students into their class to kind of foster some cross-functional collaboration and some, some innovation. And in order to pass the damn class, we had to write a business plan for a high technology startup. So I and a few of my friends to pass the class, Uh, developed the business plan for what became uh, risk management software at the time, now risk management solutions, and it was a very productive use of uh, school time and uh, various professors uh, during that master's year were very kind in giving me time uh, to continue to sharpen the business plan uh, during that final master's year um, at Stanford. Now our story over time is we started uh, with offering a single model for three cities in California to quantify earthquake risk. And over the years, we followed a pretty uh, straightforward strategic playbook, um, extending the geography of what we model from California to the United States, to Japan, et cetera, expanding the number of perils we model from earthquake hazards to a range of climactic hazards to terrorism hazards, to disease pandemics, and uh, being able to model more and more classes of physical and financial exposure. And this has been our journey over the years. What I'd like to do in this talk is not uh, bore you too much with the background of RMS, give you a bit of context about the business, uh, tell you some stories about some of the uh, shenanigans and and challenges uh, that we encountered along the way, um, and then wrap up with a few comments about what I may have learned or be learning about this, and then try to leave some time at the end uh, for questions. Now one mark of progress in a business is that our models have gotten a lot more sophisticated over the years. When we started version one, again three cities in California, earthquake risk only, we shipped on 17 five and a quarter inch floppy diskettes. Um, Our most recent release uh, in 2013, um, global models, multiple perils, if we shipped on five and a quarter inch floppies it would be about 500,000 of these five and a quarter inch floppies, probably cargo container load uh, full of media uh, to drop on premise at a client's side, which is one of the reasons we're now moving to the cloud. But I guess that's that's progress of sorts. So we now have a pretty wide range of models uh, for most geographies around the world. We model earthquake risk, we model hurricane risk, we model cyclone risk, typhoon risk, flood risk, fire risk, winter storms, tornado, hail, we model terrorism risk, 28 different attack modes from improvised explosive devices to chemical, nuclear, biological, and radiological devices. We model a range of pandemic diseases that could cause significant human casualties and financial impacts around the world. And we also even have a practice uh, that is uh, modeling what we call longevity risk, which is trying to assess the the potential for a catastrophic increase in life expectancy due to uh, um, things like the biology of aging and regenerative medicine Uh, there is a chance that life expectancy increases in very unexpected ways. And while that's a good thing for all of us, uh, it could be a significant financial catastrophe for for some institutions. And so that's a growing practice in the business. And we're even doing some research and development around things like supply chain risk um, and uh, for financial contagion um, as well. So pretty broad range of peril models, uh, catastrophe models for a wide range of geographies, for a wide range of... uh, 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 exposures. A couple just factoids about the business. Um, We started, there were five of us. Uh, We're now the world's leading catastrophe modeling firm. We have 1,300 employees around the world. Uh, We have hundreds of clients. This is not a business that has tens or hundreds of thousands or millions of of, uh, uh, consumers uh, pinging our website. This is a business that serves hundreds of institutional clients around the world to help them manage their financial risk to catastrophic events. Uh, We have a subscription business model uh, in which we license our analytics and our intellectual property with an annual recurring revenue model while we do do some consulting work. And just to give you a sense of individual client revenues range from about $100,000 a year uh, to license our models and data and analytics to uh, over 10 million a year is our our largest single client and our models are embedded into the fabric of the insurance, reinsurance and special investors that we serve, helping them to price, structure and underwrite risk, assess and manage capital and exposure to these risks, and develop and implement mitigation strategies to reduce the consequences of these disasters. I thought I'd say a couple of words about what the hell a catastrophe model is, for those of you who might be wondering. uh, This is not a closed form, Uh, mathematical model, this is not a single analytic expressed with n parameters, it is a composite model which is a attempt to characterize using stochastic techniques the underlying um, characteristics of earthquake occurrence in this case the frequency of events where they occur, uh, what the local consequences are of those events saying ground shaking at this site um, what the exposure is to this individual building, to that ground shaking, how that translates into things like physical damage to the property and potential for human harm for occupants in the building, uh, through to the financial consequences of, uh, of those damages so that uh, our financial services clients can assess the risk. That's what we mean by a catastrophe model. This is just an illustration of an earthquake model, but the architecture is similar for the climactic hazard models, for the terrorism models, uh, the, the pandemic models and so on. There's lots of ways that these models can be expressed. Um, here's a couple of expressions of our terrorism model. You can express these, the, the model output, as a scenario. So you can go into the stochastic model and pluck out an event such as a five ton truck bomb attack um, in Sen, uh, Times Square, in New York City. We model the bomb blast, the effects of canyon channeling uh, pressure waves through uh, the uh, urban environment, it could assess the footprint of damage from an individual scenario, in this case, a truck bomb attack. It can also express this as a risk map, which is the integration of all the possible events that we think might occur to so get a kind of contour of risk throughout say Manhattan. But our sort of defining and signature expression of risk is something that we call an exceeding probability curve, which is a way of expressing risk, which is what is the probability over a given time period uh, that there is X dollars, euros, yen, pounds, what have you of loss or greater to an asset or portfolio of assets. So this particular curve you'd read is saying there is a 1% chance per year that this asset has $200 million of loss or more from the underlying events that we're simulating. This asset could be millions of insurance policies, it could be one large industrial facility, it could be a a large uh, urban environment, but this is the kind of output that we generate. And it's pretty significant big compute, uh, big data and analytic output. Often the input data to these models runs in the gigabytes and the output from individual analysis can run into the terabytes and in some cases into the petabytes of information just for one uh, set of simulated outputs. So this is pretty significant computational uh, resources get brought to bear and I'll talk a bit about that later um, as part of the, some of the stories about RMS. Now just to bring it to life briefly uh, before reverting back to the beginning and, and walking through uh, some of the things we've experienced as a business, just to illustrate a, a typical use case uh, for these catastrophic models, now it wasn't that long ago when Hurricane Sandy, um, Superstorm Sandy, barreled into the U.S. Northeast. One of many really bad outcomes uh, was that the New York City subway system, MTA, was completely submerged um, and flooded with water. The economic losses were extraordinary uh, to the New York subway system and we were enlisted after Hurricane Sandy to help them construct a a parametric hedge against future flooding losses to the New York MTA so that they can construct a bond against that parametric trigger and, and lay off financial risk from storm surge flooding into investors into the capital markets. And RMS got retained to perform the analysis of the New York City subway system, uh, to help construct the parameters that would drive the trigger to the bond and help them construct the deal and then support the placement into the capital markets. This is the kind of financially minded use case around an RMS catastrophe model that happens uh, quite often um, with our customers. And in this particular case, this is this particular uh, uh, catastrophe bond was awarded non-traditional Deal deal of the Year by Bond Buyer last year, and it helped the uh, New York MTA close its financial risk gap to future storm surge events. And this is the kind of thing that we do, and there was a lot of publicity about this deal in the Wall Street Journal. So that's just one of many use cases that uh, I could uh, share about how catastrophe modeling uh, gets used to inform financial risk management decisions in the real world and how we add value to our customers. Okay, so that's a bit of the background and some context to um, RMS as a business. I'd like to share with you, um, uh, with some of the time we have here, some of the stories um, along the way uh, that informed uh, my own journey um, as a co-founder and CEO and uh, shaped the development of this business over the last 25 years. Actually, it's a very wonderful time to be giving this talk. Um, this year, 2014, is the 25-year anniversary uh, since we formally incorporated and uh, started our business. So i uh, start with the, uh, the uh, experimentation phase uh, when we first formed the business, um, otherwise known as uh, the start-up chaos. Um, we were um, equipped uh, with uh, a bit of money from my father and a couple of his friends. I guess now the term of art is angel investing. Um, but the, uh, the early days of RMS were, were pretty seated the pants. The first office that we had was my apartment, and uh, we used to uh, uh, play some games with our early customers, who hopefully aren't watching right now, where when we get phone calls uh, to my apartment that involved any sort of technical challenge, uh, we'd have this system set up where I would have a phone where I could have two lines page my co-founder Wei Min Dong who was the brains of the operation, uh, conference call them in and patch them into the client to create the impression that we had a proper firm that could answer their questions. And there was this kind of, this kind of craziness. Um, another kind of uh, example of the early chaos and improvisation was we had an early prospect uh, uh, who wanted to take a look at our software. They were domiciled in the U.S. East Coast and we didn't have enough money uh, to make the, uh, the trip over to the East Coast to set up shop and give them a proper extended workshop and demo. So being very naive, we said, well, tell you what, if you want to take a look at our software, why don't you advance us some money um, so we can fly out to visit you, run the workshop, and if you decide to buy the software, we'll credit it back uh, against the purchase price. So it's a lot of crazy stuff like that. Uh, at one point, we, uh, we basically ran out of money and uh, one of our early colleagues, another Stanford grad, um, turned up for work and I had to inform him that we really couldn't pay him very much um, anymore because we're running out of money, but he could move into my apartment free of charge um, in order to uh, uh, provide him the ability to uh, still work at the company. Um, The early days were were wonderful for a lot of reasons, uh, not the least being the great team. I'd say of the first Uh, Twenty-five people, I'm going to call out a couple of my early colleagues who are here in the audience today. Uh, I think about 80 percent of us, of the first 25 people, were all Stanford uh, grads. They were either friends of mine from the class of 88 or 89. Uh, They were friends of friends who also were Stanford grads. They were part of my father's network of grad students, postdocs, research associates. So there's a real kind of Stanford ethos, camaraderie, and sense of shared mission uh, that got us through a lot of those crazy days. We used to pull lots of all-nighters like every startup does, and we used to have staff meetings. Uh, The big choice of whether we have the staff meeting at the Stanford pub, Rich, remember, or 42nd Street. I don't know if any of you remember uh, 42nd Street, which was a great uh, bar in downtown Palo Alto uh, where we used to uh, have some of our staff meetings. Now, when we first got started, uh, we did have a version one uh, of our product. This is what it looked like, it shipped on these 17 five and a quarter floppy diskettes coded in Fortran 77, um, but we understood even back then, uh, we had the intuition to recognize that this was really a proof of concept and what we needed to do in these early days was experiment and engage in actual work with real customers Uh, to really understand what was the product that we could deliver that would really solve concrete use cases and add concrete business value. So in the early days what we set out to do was a lot of experimentation rather than saying we had our V1 product, now we're going to take it to market. Uh, We spent a lot of time essentially even though we knew very clearly that we were a software company, uh, a lot of the early engagements were essentially consulting projects, Uh, signing up customer by customer on the concept that an earthquake risk model could add value, but really engaging with them the consultative work to figure out how this really could be made useful to a specific business problem. We spent countless hours and days holed up with our customers, understanding how they did business, understanding their vernacular, what kind of data did they capture, how did they make an underwriting decision, how did an insurance loss control engineer go into the field, to collect data about a piece of property, to make a recommendation to the insurance underwriter, how could we deliver a piece of software that might facilitate that decision, and so on and so forth. So it was a a period of great experimentation uh, to really learn the use cases of our customers, get paid for doing so, in order to get to a place where we could say that we understood what the product strategy needed to be. Now some of this experimentation got a bit crazy. Uh, One of the more wild experiments that we did, because you get distracted when you're 23, 24 years old, is that we thought, how, what if we constructed, offered a product, which was an earthquake report that we could sell to homeowners in Palo Alto in order to help them as consumers assess their risk to earthquake damage. And we got off on this crazy tangent where we were constructing consumer brochures, um, buying mailing lists, mailing out brochures, um, collecting information by fax about homeowner's homes, running reports. It's like the old days of e-commerce when you order the sneakers somebody goes, runs out, buys a pair of tennis shoes and ships it to you. you know, We would get the fax in, we would type it into our computer, we'd compile a report and send it and charge 100 bucks. A complete disaster um, and certainly something that uh, we learned the hard way not to build a business to consumer business uh, around our earthquake risk analytics. But a lot of experimentation is learning not only what does work, uh, what doesn't work. And as we approached the end of this experimentation phase, we learned a lot of things. Uh, but one thing that really got us into a bit of a jam was that by the early 90s, uh, towards the end of this phase, we probably had about 22, 23 clients who had paid us real money to experiment with them on how an earthquake risk model for California could add value to an insurance or financial services use case. But with 22 clients, I think we had probably 23 or 24 versions of our software and we were a little bit out of control. Um, And it was a real challenge to balance that kind of need for experimentation um, in the context of actual customer use cases and actually then reconcile that with the need to build um, a scalable business around a singular vision of what the product strategy was and and, and an actual product development plan to deliver Uh, that kind of uh, capability. So a great deal of experimentation, some misfires, and a bit of a jam. Uh, We then got into a phase where it was really about establishing uh, the business model. By by 1993, we were able to raise about $3 million in venture capital um, on the basis of some of the early um, evidence that we had that customers would pay us money for an earthquake risk model. And we had uh, been able to upgrade our digs from a small office in Palo Alto over to one on Castro Street in, uh, in Mountain View. Um, but at this point in the, uh, the journey, um, I encountered one of the early crucibles that many young uh, entrepreneurs um, encounter and that's the recognition uh, of one's own limitations and to have the humility and the self-awareness to not stand in the way of what's needed to build a real business and grow. We went through the process of raising venture capital. Um, I came to uh, be introduced to my colleague Tom Hutton, who's sitting here in the front row. And Tom, uh, uh, also a Stanford grad, uh, engineering, um, MS, and then went on to do his, uh, his uh, MBA at Harvard, uh, was introduced to us um, as uh, a potential CEO to build the next phase of the business as part of raising capital and uh, and, uh, really starting to get more systematic about what it takes to really build a software business um, out of the experimentation phase. And I think one of the things that uh, was very um, uh, real learning experience for me uh, was knowing when it's okay to ask for help and to stand aside and let someone come in to help teach you. And over the years, Uh, Tom became a mentor and taught me uh, pretty much everything I now know about business and helped really systematize from those early experimental days um, the company into a much more scalable business model. During this phase, we not only focused, of course, on adding more customers and adding more employees and building the business, there were two key challenges that we really focused on. One was articulating the product strategy and understanding what is the coherent value proposition and the use cases that we needed to deliver against to fulfill that value proposition and develop a proper product roadmap and product development plan to kind of pivot from lots of experimentation with lots of customers and lots of individual uh, wins to something coherent and scalable. In our case, we step back and with Tom and Rich Boyle, another colleague who was our first head of engineering, well, p- colleague class of 88 um, at Stanford as well, we built a proper product roadmap that recognized it's, the category isn't earthquake risk model, it's natural hazard model, it's not California, it's global and it's not just insurance or reinsurance but it's multiple classes of exposure, articulated that roadmap. And with the investment capital we raised, we're able to then invest in building against that roadmap. Another key challenge that we overcame at this point is what's the business model of the business? At the time, we had envisioned that we, being a software business, would sell our software. I think the price points at the time were $15,000, $25,000, and we would charge an annual maintenance fee 15 20%, 25% against that initial sale, and that's how we were gonna build the business. During this phase, we came to understand that to build a scalable business, it's not just about the technology or the product, it's the business model itself. What's the business model that is right for this kind of uh, technology that can create a sustainable and durable source of revenue to fund the growth of the business? And we re-envisioned the business not as a software uh, 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 perpetual software sale, but as an annual subscription model, which was a key innovation at the time, which has led to the recurring revenue business model that has enabled us to sustain the growth uh, year after year from uh, to about $300 million in revenue is what we have today. So there was a lot of work in this phase, raising venture capital, articulating a coherent product strategy, executing it, and also being clear about what kind of business model we needed to put in place in order to sustain uh, this business over time. So by the, uh, by the late uh, 1990s, uh, we were feeling uh, pretty good. Uh, we had grown from um, you know, two, three million in revenue over the decade to about 30 million in revenue, factor of 10X increase in revenues. We were making a bit of money, uh, which is always helpful. Um, we had uh, some pretty good customers. Uh, we had a range of models for different perils and different geographies around the world. And we even had, uh, we were very thrilled, it's a sort of sign of uh, coming of age, we even had an industry analyst called the Tower Group um, write an industry report about this nascent market called catastrophe modeling and, uh, and we felt like, okay, we've established the business, we have real customers, Uh, we have a good business model, we're making a bit of money, analysts are talking about cap modeling as a product category. Um, 30 million dollar niche analytics business, that's not so bad, Uh, lots of niche analytics business get to 20, 30, 40 million dollars, and that's their potential, we've grown by a factor of 10. And uh, we begin to uh, enter a phase I refer to in hindsight as the uh, mature market fallacy. and this was a very um, interesting learning experience. There were a couple of things going on um, at this phase um, in the business. Uh, one is that we began to think of the business as starting to mature. You know, when you look backwards, 10x growth, that's not bad, 30 million in software, recurring revenue uh, is pretty good. Um, we looked around and said, you know, we've built models for most of the developed countries. We had an earthquake model, not only for the U.S. but for Japan. We had, a wind, you know, we had wind models for Europe. We had, you know, we had typhoon models for Japan. We had earthquake models for Latin America. We had penetrated a lot of our uh, major uh, target customers. And we started to think about the business um, as a maturing specialty analytics business that certainly we thought could continue to grow, but um, that perhaps the significant growth story was behind us. Um, At that point we made the decision um, to sell the business uh, to the Daily Mail and General Trust, which I won't get into the details, but it was part of the mindset which was that we had invested in this little startup, we had overcome the the, uh, years of startup chaos, we had validated our value proposition, we raised venture capital, we invested in building a, a coherent product line, we had good customers, we had a good uh, revenue, it was growing but beginning to, growth was beginning to slow. Um, and sort of the thought was it's the logical time to exit. Um, unfortunately around the same time which was fueling this view of the mature uh, market fallacy, sometimes business challenges are, are uh, exogenous uh, to your business. Uh, for those of you who, who uh, uh, recall this time, uh, this was the, uh, the dot-com boom was approaching its crescendo um, in the end of the 1990s. It got to the point where um, around 99 and 2000, um, we started to experience um, this kind of combination of this is a maturing business and this tremendous exogenous uh, forces of the dot-com boom. Um, lots, of, uh, those, um, lots of us who had joined the business as kids were getting ready to move on. Um, we had to, uh, one example is we had to uh, relocate our office. And at the time, uh, landlords were getting uh, warrants and equity in technology company in Silicon Valley in return for office space. We couldn't afford that. We went like refugees across the Dumbarton Bridge in a wagon train uh, to Newark, California. We felt like we weren't at the center of this transformative thing called the internet. And, uh, and it was a very scary time. We had uh, one year, uh, I can't recall if it was 99 or 2000, I think it was 99, where our turnover rate approached 40% in the company. And this is not four out of 10 people. We had you know close to, we had a probably around 100 uh, plus people in the business to lose almost half your company for all the right reasons, tremendous opportunities, we had grown the business, uh, there were Uh, there was a liquidity event, um, but it was a very scary time uh, um, trying to manage through uh, this process. And we began to think of the business maturing and we made the decision to sell the business and many of the startup team exited, um, lots of hugs and handshakes, uh, but people started to move on um, and uh, there was a tremendous amount of turnover um, at this time. And at that point was another key, Uh, Milestone, I have here kind of very grayed out uh, this uh, this quote from a strategist, uh, uh, the now deceased uh, CK Prahalad, who uh, taught uh, uh, strategy at University of Michigan, extensively written in the Harvard Business Review, had a chance to workshop uh, the RMS strategy before he passed away, uh, and he wrote about uh, uh, what he called the mature market fallacy, where often it's not a business that's mature, but an executive's own conceptualization of the stream of future opportunities that becomes mature and sort of challenge yourself to rethink and reinvent oneself and the notion of how you can grow and add value in order to create a future stream of opportunities for the business. So shortly after the acquisition um, I sat down with, uh, with the team and with the new owners and said, you know what, I know we think we can grow this business from 30-odd million to 40, 50, maybe 60 million. Uh, we know you've put in place a very generous earnout for us to earn out our shares and options. Um, and we can see how this story is going to end, Like it does in so many of these situations, the startup team earns out, it moves on um, and starts up the next business. Um, and the business uh, stays as an interesting niche analytics firm, in our case, 30, 40, 50 million dollars in revenue is no slouch, as a software company um, and that's the end of the story. Um, and in this particular case, I'm not entirely sure why, uh, maybe uh, future years of therapy will help, but we sat down and we went to the new owners and we said, you know, we don't think this story is over. Uh, we don't think the next chapter is the earnout, and success is a $50 million version of RMS with some real profits. Um, how about uh, a version of this story which is, we think we can grow to $100 million in business. And we had several ideas on how we might re-envision our opportunities for growth um, and how we can monetize that growth, and how about we essentially kind of restart things up again. So instead of these very uh, nice earnouts, how about we re-up uh, with more equity in the business? How about a significant new set of grants to devolve down to recruit uh, the team, um, re-up the uh, the the, uh, the veterans who um, were were inclined to uh, to uh, stick around for the next phase of growth, and uh, let's see if we can actually make another run at this, uh, and not just. Uh, sort of call it a day at a $30 to $50 million specialty analytics business. And uh, uh, to our great surprise, uh, the new parent shareholder said yes. So we uh, we re-upped, a lot of equity was dispersed to the team. Uh, We implemented some new ideas uh, that were about uh, penetrating more deeply into our customers, not just having them have a license for our models but really working the models into the heart of their business processes. Um, we started to innovate in expanding beyond natural hazard risk into things like terrorism risk and disease pandemic risk. And in many ways, the, uh, the decade that followed was the most productive um, and significant growth stage of the company's um, history. We went from, uh, at the beginning of the decade, about 30 million in revenue, to the end of the decade, about 250 million of, of, of revenue. Uh, we crossed the $100 million threshold much sooner than we thought. And by uh, the, the latter part of uh, the decade, the models had been elevated to a whole other class of value in our customer's enterprise, and, there were, and we were really, uh, had really reinvigorated um, RMS and overcome uh, the, uh, the mature market fallacy um, and reinvented who we are, how we add value, and the scale and size of the opportunities um, before us. Which then brings us to uh, the, uh, the present. Um, you've all heard of this, uh, uh, this, this notion of the, the innovator's dilemma. Um, by the uh, end of last decade, uh, 2008, 2009, 2010, things were looking um, pretty good at RMS. Um, we were, we were uh, closing in I think on 250 million in revenue, again up from 30 million a decade before. Uh, we were quite profitable, You know, margins, 30-plus percent operating margins. Uh, we were growing steadily, not like a rocket ship, but growing steadily. And uh, we were really woven into the fabric of the insurance, reinsurance markets that we serve. And it started to get a little uncomfortable. Um, and the, there was a sense that the language was starting to change. Um, the language of meetings in the company started going from growth to how do we protect our market share. Uh, The language started shifting from um, how are we going to double the company again as the key metrics to how do we ensure we can keep a 50% market share in the business that we're serving. Uh, a lot of language that was self-congratulatory. It was language that was, we are the leaders, as opposed to, we're leading. Um, we are the most innovative company in the space, as opposed to innovating. And while what we did every day was quite innovative, after all, building stochastic models for typhoons and floods and terrorism is inherently, incredibly stimulating and intellectually demanding work, we were running in the same playbook um, that we had been running for over a decade. And there was a sense of defending the status quo, celebrating what we had accomplished, as opposed to re-envisioning how we could add value, what we needed to do to invest in new ways of adding value, and how to think of ourselves not as the market leader in the field, but rather than the 50% market leader in the niche field, what's the market that we could serve that were the 5 to 10% Market share player in, and it's the classic um, sort of innovator's dilemma, which is how do you make the shift from uh, being so invested in one's own status quo to take the necessary risks uh, to uh, try to drive a, f- a, a new uh, round of growth um, in the business? And this was a very interesting and uh, challenging time. The company was not a you know not a Goliath, but by our historic standards, we started 5, 25, 50, you know, 1, 000, you know, 800, 900 people in the business, lots of clients, real profits, uh, significant revenue streams, market share position, we reenvisioned um, in a very top-down way um, a new strategy for the business, which was one in which would require us to take some very significant risks in order to pivot um, our fundamental value proposition and how we add value in a way when we still had the tools at our disposal, the, uh, the financial resources, uh, the market position, um, the, uh, the momentum, when we could still be in control as opposed to uh, settling on an increasing defensive posture about defending market share, defending position, and then waiting for the time for somebody to change the rules of the game out from underneath us, after a lot of these kinds of businesses where you have very significant market positions don't often um, uh, uh, succumb because your number two or number three competitor picks up 10 points of market share. It's because you become so invested in defending the status quo, you don't see something coming that fundamentally changes the terms of value that the customer experiences and the ways in which they can consume that value, and there's some disruptive change that causes you to fundamentally lose the plot line and then no matter how much you try to defend your market share, it's, uh, it's like sand running through your hands. So we went through this process which was very challenging because we went into our own organization and said, we need to undergo a substantial pivot in our strategy. We need to go from being a, primarily being seen as the world's leading provider of scientifically informed catastrophe models to delivering the exposure and risk management environment for this industry to, yes, analyze risk using models, but to manage risk. And to do so by opening an ecosystem of capability to our competitors and to others to build models and analytics and applications on our platform and deliver all of that software and platform as a service in the cloud. And these conversations were extremely difficult internally. Um, some of the most challenging, and the story is not over yet by the way, so I'm not quite sure how this is all going to turn out. Um, we had a number of, uh, uh, this, this transformation has been going on for over two years now, but it started with a lot of very angst-filled internal dialogue about why is there the need for change. and. The institutional, internal, and cultural barriers to change when you've been able to develop a reasonably successful business that has a well-defined brand and market position that is understood by employees and customers alike to be doing something very specific very well and getting compensated for that. To make the pivot and do something different only happens in one of two situations. Uh, One is when you're under existential threat of death and that's quite a motivator to try something different. Or the opportunities are so significant, it challenges you to think differently and take some risks. And we went through a whole internal process, and I made so many mistakes and learned so many things the hard way about how a top-down strategy uh, to take an organization that was intensely proud as it should be of everything that had accomplished over 20 years of innovation in a very specific dimension, to take that organization through change um, and build the case for change uh, was extremely uh, difficult. And we got there, we got there, we got full alignment, but it took a lot longer than I thought. It was much harder than I imagined, and it was very scary at times. When you are starting to uh, pivot the company and try to bring the culture with you and realize that you might fracture the very organization that brought you to this place, um, and you haven't yet made the definitive, not only intellectual case, but emotional case for why a company should go through significant change, it's a very scary place um, as a leader to go through that uh, realization that you might not make it to the other side. And often it's not the customers or the market who votes, it's your own employees and colleagues who vote, whether they buy in uh, to the rationale for change and stick with you, uh, through the process. Um, we've been going through this journey now uh, for almost three years. Um, we, are, uh, we have been building uh, what we call RMS1, which is certainly uh, going to deliver world-class catastrophe models, but is essentially now we're positioning as an environment for resilient and real-time exposure and risk management, and we are framing this as a core system in our client's Inter- enterprise delivered as a cloud, Uh, based um, uh, service, and uh, we feel can more than double our addressable market. Uh, We are going to market uh, in about six weeks uh, with uh, the initial release of RMS1. Um, So the story is not yet over, but uh, we have uh, made the pivot internally and gotten significant buy-in alignment um, and held the company together through a very significant internal change management effort. Uh, new uh, priorities and investments in the business and technology, and colleagues. Um, if you look at the senior 20 people in the RMS leadership team right now, uh, seven, 21 senior 21 people in the RMS leadership team. Uh, 17 of the 21 are either new or had a very different job just two years ago. So a tremendous amount of change in the leadership team, but we brought the core culture through. Uh, the modeling team stayed intact are as enthusiastic as ever about delivering great models through this platform. But there's just a whole a lifetime of lessons I feel I've learned about the soft part about uh, leading transformation and change in one's own culture. And uh, many mistakes were made, um, but uh, I think we learned fast enough that we're coming through okay on the other side. And now we're delivering a, uh, a very significant new platform. Uh, several hundred million dollars of investment have gone into the software engineering um, and cloud computing infrastructure. We've stood up data centers in Iceland, um, in the UK, in Canada, uh, here in California, and uh, soon in Asia. Um, and uh, we, are, we are going to market with a significant offering as a private cloud uh, not only to offer up our models, but the models of our competitors and others in what we hope to be as a specialized risk management ecosystem of third-party providers via our platform to this very large trillion-dollar global financial services industry that's looking to manage risk. Now, being modelers, um, we haven't—we uh, are—we uh, are still fiercely. Uh, Aware of our core DNA. Among other things we did is generate uh, exceeding probability curves for the number of cores we would need to have on demand to meet the uh, use cases of simultaneous clients firing off large-scale hurricane, flood, and earthquake analyses all at the same time. And uh, we're modeling here the probability that in any one day during peak business season we will need more than 30,000, 35,000, 40, 50,000. So this is significant big compute infrastructure that we're building to be able to scale up uh, to deliver this much compute capacity in a cloud uh, to the needs of an entire uh, vertical market. Um, And uh, we haven't forgotten uh, that we are modelers. Um, As I close in on a couple of uh, wrap-up comments, I I do want to leave a little uh, time for Q&A. you know What do I know? I, I have only worked at one job uh, my whole career, um, lots of different experiences um, in that 25 years. But a couple of things that I, that I wanted to share maybe as so, sort of uh, summary thoughts, um, I guess first off is uh, there is uh, more to life than social media technology companies. Um, you don't have to ride in a big gleaming white bus to come to work. Um, and if you're interested in big data analytics, you can do something more socially meaningful than build uh, algorithms to help people buy more stuff on the web. Uh, there are a lot of companies like RMS harnessing big compute, scientific computing, um, and very sophisticated analytic, analytic capabilities to solve really serious uh, mission scale problems. And I encourage you as students uh, to recognize that there are lots of cool companies doing very serious stuff. Uh, with this kind of uh, this kind of technology um strategic uh intent matters um it's okay and i think at times necessary uh to have heroic aspirations as ck prahalad said all out of proportion with one's capabilities and the challenge isn't not to envision the gap but how to systematically challenge your organization uh to close the gap and that sets up my third point which is mission matters um rms uh, uh since day one, has been a purpose-driven company. Our big ideal from when we started the company was to make the world a safer and more resilient place. And that, I don't mean just as a slogan. There's a whole theory of the firm uh, which connects what we do to the markets that we serve, uh, to the problems we are trying to help them solve, to making the world a safer and more resilient place. Uh, Both ex post disasters by having more coverage to Finance the recovery of communities after disasters, and ex ante by building in the financial incentives to create mitigation to reduce loss when the events occur. Uh, mission matters, and mission matters not because it's just cool and it makes you feel good when you look at it at, at uh, your slogan on the wall, but when you need to go take an organization through years of change and sometimes very painful change when whether it's you know almost forty percent turnover due to exogenous factors in your business or the pivot to a major strategic change which is very risky and how to hold your organization's culture intact. If you have a strong mission, it's not you know do you have cool slides, and do you get great sushi at lunch, it's do you really have a purpose that your team buys into that transcends the day-to-day of what you work that really matters, that makes you believe in your core that what you do makes an impact. If you believe that, if you have that mission-based ethos in the organization, you can be extremely resilient uh, at times, a great change and challenge and risk, and take the organization through that through that uh, journey. Um, another observation is sometimes things that matter take time. Um, it seems like you know. You know, I'm not some. I guess I am kind of an old guy coming back to Stanford to talk to a bunch of students, but uh, um, you know, it seems like so much focus now is is uh, around building and flipping and transacting businesses where you know yeah there might be a nod to a mission statement or a big hairy audacious goal at the end of the day the organization is started geared wired and run to affect the uh, the takeout the sale the acquisition or the or the liquidity event and things that matter and there's a lot of things in the world that need to be sorted out. The really big things that matter sometimes take time. Now maybe you don't just stick around in the same business like I have for 25 years and, uh, uh, to make a go of it, but I think we need to extend our half-life to solve the kind of problems uh, requires a commensurate cognitive scale of thought, purpose, and action uh, that can't be solved in a three-year cycle uh, and then on to the next thing. Sometimes things take time, and I know it's hard To think in decadal terms, but I fully expect to be here in 25 years still in pursuit of this this heroic mission. And finally, um, take the time uh, to invest in your own learning and development and grow as a person. I know that can sound kind of soft and woolly coming from an engineer speaking to many engineers, but I think a lot of people now confuse uh, developing oneself with networking. All right. Right, you, you guys all do that yourself. Networking, yes, of course there's opportunities to create to learn, that's not what I'm talking about. It's about having the humility uh, to recognize how little you know and how important it is to continually and passionately invest in your own self-discovery to make yourself a more effective leader. One of the uh, best opportunities I had Uh, tremendous opportunity uh, that took full advantage of, is that I got invited to uh, participate in a leadership development program put on by the Aspen Institute. And uh, unfortunately, it wasn't two years of full time in in Aspen, Colorado, but it was a three-year elapsed time where I got the chance to spend many weeks um, in a program, intense program, with some wonderful people um, in the spirit of community-based leadership, um, ethical leadership, and uh, leadership with purpose. And it's these kinds of things that you know, often get overlooked in the frenzy of the next big thing, and the next flip, and the next valuation round, and the next startup, um, and find time uh, to, uh, uh, to pursue uh, one's own uh, growth. And finally, I'd like to just say uh, my, my, my own uh, management team is very excited I'm here. Um, out of this 20-odd-person leadership team we have today, almost half of uh, the team, about 40%, are Stanford alums, um, either in the business school or the engineering schools. Uh, so we feel very uh, proud to be part of this community um, and thrilled to have this opportunity and this honor to, uh, to come share out our experiences uh, with you, uh, what we've gone through over the last uh, 25 years. Uh, so with that, I just want to thank you for this opportunity. I think we've got exactly you know, seven minutes for and, Rich, you can't ask me any hard questions. Yeah. 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 Yes? So, what are the biggest lessons you learned in, in your latest business strategy shift of <coughs> changing the DNA of the company, so getting it to move in the new direction? Well, I think, I think the, oh, there's a lot, there's a lot. I think getting people, the first mistake I made was overly intellectualizing the strategy. Of course, it makes sense, it's so evident here's the logical argument and, and didn't engage people enough emotionally in why there was a need for change um, and engage people as human beings emotionally around why should they as people buy into a new strategy um, and why that strategy doesn't alienate them from the business that they love and they made the choice to come work here. And uh, that was uh, something that I, um, I feel like uh, uh, if, if, if I do this again, I will spend far more time on, on that aspect, getting emotional buy-in uh, from the team as opposed to just trying to cram it down top down because it makes uh, uh, intellectual sense. Another thing that um, was, uh, you know, maybe some unfortunate statement on, on, on human nature, but um, in the early days of the change management process, which I guess is the, uh, the proper way to refer to these things, it didn't seem like much like a process at the time, but initially, the change management process, I spent a lot, I'm a very, um, op, a very optimistic person. I, I'm a glass half full person and I sold the need for change in very aspirational, these are huge opportunity. I find, found that also when, I, when we realized as a leadership team that we needed to balance the need for change with it's going to be great if we pull this off and the opportunities are much more, but also that the status quo is not risk free. So, human beings, we always think the status quo ex ante is the risk free option, and change is risky. It's very hard for us, I think a lot of social scientists suggested, to cognitively realize that the status quo carries a lot of risk. So, we started talking about the downside and the risks that things that can go terribly wrong if we just keep sticking to our knitting. And we didn't overdo that because again, I'm a very optimistic person. But we started dialing in maybe a 22% weight on the downside, as opposed to that. That really tipped people's minds that there's a there's a need where the status quo isn't tenable. We have to change, and the risk of change is balanced against the risk of not changing, as opposed to just the great stuff that's going to happen if we successfully pull it off. Balanced against the fear that if we uh, we fail, we're going to squ- you know we're going to have we're going to we're going to screw up what we already built. So that was a Yes, here um, I'm, I'm curious when you say your addressable market is doubled, so what is that addressable market now and it, does it also include things like financial market risk yeah. that MSCI bar yeah. and, and all other kinds of risk besides like physical risk? Yeah, the, uh, uh, the, the short answer is that the addressable market, um, the way we're defining it is in the near term, we think we double the business. Um, the uh, Uh, The longer term, it's it's the three vectors, volume, space. Um, It's about uh, extending um, into new classes of risk. So we've got R&D teams working on that kind of thing. Uh, The second is uh, the pivot from the, the value is primarily built around the, it's not just the model, it's the environment and the platform in which these institutions manage risk, including consuming the tools, analytics and applications of others. And the third is the customer's customer and the customer's customer's customer, a key part about the cloud proposition isn't just about doing things more efficiently. Is We can now, we have a few hundred customers that are institutional, uh, what about a few thousand customers or 10,000 customers, the broader community of interest that is exposed to catastrophic risk, not just large insurance companies and hedge funds, but uh, corporations and entities around the world that we can extend the tail of the, uh, the business significantly. Yes. Um, so, like, I know you started off 25 years ago. So, how do you keep that innovative? I mean, from a leadership perspective, how do you keep that innovative culture throughout those 25 years? And what I mean, like, what type of strategies, type of incentives do you use to motivate your employees? I think um, I think a lot of it is, uh, you know, what the psychological damage I got as a kid, I suppose. But I mean, there there is a kind of there is. I mean, we all know this. I mean, you, everybody in this room is super ambitious and uh, high achieving. There there's there's some unquantifiable thing that gets you motivated to do that, and that's with you your whole life. I think um, the thing, that a more practical uh, uh, response is the uh, this notion of mission really matters. I mean, if you really internalize why you exist and what your really big aspiration, you know, not just I want to change the world, but what's the theory that creates a very very big context and a very distant horizon that stays evergreen and constantly creates this tension where that when you look at where you are, you're forced to not just look backwards and think about how far you've come, how little progress you've made against your goal. And there's that kind of creative tension that gets created like, oh shit, we have so much still to do that stimulates this kind of innovation and risk taking that then gets worked into the culture of the company. Um, because you're always, you know, you're 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 stretching yourself so far in terms of this notion of, of what you want to accomplish as a business. Yes. So, when is the right time to start your own company? <laughs> uh, well, I think uh, all I can speak about is my my own experience. Uh, 22 years old. Business plan was written in school. Um, I got to work with great people like Rich. Um, and learned from people like Tom on the job. Other people might have the opportunity to go work someplace first to learn the skills that I learned from Tom on the job. Uh, there's no right answer. Um, all I, my own experience was 22 years old and uh, uh, June of 1989, uh, we incorporated um, and were, uh, we're uh, pulling all-nighters um, answering clients' questions. Yes. I trust you're familiar with like Nassine's talk, uh, anti-fragile concept. I'm mm-hmm. just curious, you know, how um how you kind of apply that to your clients, you know. not only telling them where the risks are, but how they can you know, flip risk and sort of do it on its other benefit Yeah, yes. we have this uh concept, um it's not a new concept that we look to to quantify and articulate the resiliency of our clients' risk management strategies. And it's an inversion of the proposition. Um, so much of our society and business culture is fo- focused around optimization. You make a set of assumptions and then you drive to optimize the hell out of that system to maximize the economic returns. Um, and that leads to hyper-efficient supply chains that blow up when anything goes wrong because there's no inventory um, in the uh, in the system anymore. I'll give you but one example. The same thing happens with financial services risk. You can have a view of the world that's that is taken, and you optimize the hell out of the risk management strategy to maximize the return on allocated shareholders' capital. But what if your assumptions are wrong? You know, we also what happened in two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight. Um, and we've had a couple of versions of that ourselves. We learned the hard way where clients overly optimized around our models, and then we're surprised when we learn the hard way that all models are wrong and some are useful. Um, So we have a whole construct now that we use as resiliency where we explore the fragility of the client's risk management strategies to the underlying assumptions to see how brittle the strategies are and we invert the proposition to provide a measure of resiliency that they can use to trade off against the efficiency optimality imperative to create a balance between those two uh, those two competing uh, uh, criteria for for building a, a portfolio.
1: Kevin, I think this is I the cutoff. We're,
0: I think we we are we are thanking you. I want to thank you for being here. That was absolutely fantastic. Can we all. Thank you. you have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program.